The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. We're not going to turn to God's Word together. If you have a Bible, um, we are going to be in the book of Ecclesiastes. We are in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Ecclesiastes 4 is one of the darker chapters in Ecclesiastes. And so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to read this for us. And then we're going to pray and ask for God's help, and then we are going to dive into this wisdom chapter. I, I, I just want to remind us that the purpose of Ecclesiastes as a wisdom book is to help us focus in and ponder. Like This requires effort, this requires focus, this requires attention to wrestle with the deep questions of life. And this is a darker chapter. This is a chapter that is certainly... Um, not on the top 10 list of all the most encouraging chapters in the Bible. And yet, I think when we look through this and, and, and meditate on the darker elements of what this chapter brings out, we begin to see a negative relief, what God is leading us towards in Jesus. So I'm going to read through this together, all of chapter 4 of Ecclesiastes chapter 4, and then we'll pray and dig into this together. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are, under the, that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of the oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who were already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not yet has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw all the toil and all skill, I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hand and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has no other to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will stand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, and though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who, were, who move under the sun, along with that youth who was, sta- who was to stand in the king's place, and there was no end of all the people, all of them, I'm sorry, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this is also vanity and striving after wind. So let's pray together. Father, as we look to your word together, we ask that we 
as we look at these difficult and in some ways bleak categories, that you would teach us wisdom. That you would help us to consider how we destroy and distort our own humanity. And in Christ, Lord, we pray that you would help us to find our restored human dignity in the loving face of Jesus Christ. So in his name we pray. Amen. In many ways, I don't think that this passage needs very much of an introduction. Uh, I'm not sure um, if you have been watching the news from this last week, but in many ways, uh, the events that have transpired in Minneapolis this last week, uh, the events that have transpired in yet again, um, name upon name, of the atrocities that the black community have endured, um, in many ways, this is the prelude to getting into this passage this morning. Uh, this passage speaks very plainly, not only to these issues, but many others. And so simply what we're going to do is just acknowledge that we all come to this passage, hopefully, with the events of this last week, if not in the background of our mind, in the foreground of our mind, as we look to this passage to understand what is a place in the Bible that God addresses the things that we are feeling this morning as we come to Ecclesiastes 4. So we're just going to jump right in and simply say that without God, we distort our humanity. That is often what we're experiencing this last week. That's what we're seeing going on. Um, there is no mention in many ways of God in this passage. It is a, a passage that speaks to our experience of life apart from God. And so here's what we're going to say. The main point of this passage is that we are to consider how we destroy our humanity to wisely restore our dignity. We are to consider how we destroy our humanity, how we distort our humanity, and how we love other people. What does it mean to love our neighbors? Because at every turn through this passage, you see how people mistreat, distort, oppress, neglect, use their neighbors. And that's how we distort our humanity, is how we treat our neighbors. Um, and in considering that, how we are to wisely find the restoration of our dignity and how we find that in Christ ultimately. Um, in many ways, chapter 3 of Ecclesiastes speaks to the me of a life with God and his good gifts. And then chapter 4 turns the page and we consider the we of how we distort our lives apart from acknowledging God's good gifts in our lives. So with that in mind, we're just going to pick up here in verses 1 to 6, and we're going to look at how we, are, um, how we distort our humanity, distorting our humanity by oppressing our neighbors. Verses 1 to 6, distorting our humanity by oppressing our neighbors. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead, who were also dead, more fortunate than the living, who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been, and has not yet seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. We're going to pause there, and we'll come back to verses 4 to 6 in a minute. But the focus of this text is not so much... What is the cause of injustice? You can clearly see this in the first opening verses. The oppression that is done under the sun, right? And those who are oppressed are, at the end of verse 1, 
they are oppressed because of power. Right? This is addressing the matters of injustice that we experience in the world. And this passage is not answering the question, why does injustice happen? Right? Actually, you go over to the book of Job and you look at Job chapter 10, verses 3 to 7. That's where the book of Job addresses suffering and injustice and ties it back to the question, basically, God, is God responsible for injustice? And it, it wrestles with that there. Um, you see this over in Lamentations where basically it, it pins the cause of injustice on God and laments injustice and says, God, you're responsible for this. Both of those books wrestle with those questions and answer them in different ways. They still answer them in ways that says God is a good God who oversees but is not ultimately responsible for the injustice in this world. In his sovereignty, he is not the one who is driving the knife of murder, so to speak. Um, but Ecclesiastes just addresses the reality, and as we've seen through chapters 1 through 3, it addresses it as it is. It is a reality that exists. Wherever the answers of why and how and what, Ecclesiastes dives right into the existential, the experience of injustice happens. It is a reality. It exists. And basically, that, these kind of weird verses of two to three, right, where it's like, it's better to have never been alive. The dead are better off because they don't experience injustice. It is simply acknowledging the reality that Injustice is something that happens in our life. It is something that we experience. It is something that is a part of our living day-to-day, week-to-week life. And those who have never been born and those who have already died do not have to deal with those issues, right? It's just a, it's, it's a hyperbolic, it's an exaggerated way of saying injustice is a part of life and we must reckon with the reality that it happens. So, the beginning of verse 1, the oppressed... Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed. He meditates on them. The teacher meditates. The tears of the oppressed. And what is the ultimate painful existence of those who were oppressed under the sun? There was no one to comfort them. All avenues of justice have been denied them. They are unheard, They are unvalued. They feel overrun by a system that denies and distorts their human value. Human value, human dignity demands fair and honorable treatment. And these people that this verse addresses are those who have been denied their humanity. They, by being, by by having their tears unheard, their human dignity unvalued, they are in many ways experiencing the twisting of their humanity, the distorting of their humanity, and they can do nothing about it because the verse goes on to address the oppressors, right? The oppressors are those who use power. On the side of the oppressors, there was power. This is the use of force. This is the use of uh Coercion. This is the this is the use of economics. This is the use of any sort of advantage that is on the side of those who are at the top, or those who are in the predominance of a culture, and they use it to oppress, to push down, to twist and deny the humanity of those that they oppress. It is in many ways oppressors deny the humanity of those that they oppress by making them into things rather than people. And in so doing, they themselves, their own humanity is distorted. Because you see here at the end of the verse, there is this very strange phrase. 
on the side of the oppressors there was power and there was no one to comfort them. Right? The, these people that are oppressing others are doubling down on their power. They are locking themselves within them, their own idolatry, their own I am the God of this, this situation, I am the God of my uh, surroundings. And in so denying the humanity of others, they are distorting and twisting their own humanity. There is no one to comfort them. Oppression distorts the human value of the oppressed, and it twists the humanity of the powerful because it makes humanity about being powerful and enforcing power rather than being, Ecclesiastes 3, somebody who receives good gifts from a God that loves them. It makes them into people who must use the world around them for their own ends rather than being people that receive the good gifts of a God who loves to give good things to his people. But you see this again, there is no one to comfort the oppressors. Recently somebody asked me, um, in talking about uh, caring for people who are victims of abuse, they very insightfully asked me, well, is there any care for those? How do we bring help to care for those who are abusers? And it, it brought this verse to mind in many ways because those who are abusers are not self-aware that they are abusers. Those who are oppressors are not self-aware that they are oppressors. And it is a part of the very, very twisting of their humanity that they cannot acknowledge that they are abusing power and oppressing others. Right? It, it, we want to care for them, but in many ways, the first step towards helping people who are oppressors is simply to, um, for them to acknowledge that they need help, that they are abusers. And that's what this verse is lamenting on. There is no one to comfort them because they do not have the ability to receive comfort for something that they cannot acknowledge. They are abusing power to oppress others and then turning a deaf ear to the tears and laments and suffering of others that they are oppressing. They are locked within themselves. They do not have the ability to be comforted. But yet, I appreciate this gospel perspective in many ways in this verse because while that is certainly true, this verse laments that reality. There is no one to comfort them. You can hear almost gospel tears for those who are oppressing others that they cannot even acknowledge. They cannot even see their own predicament. They cannot even see that they have twisted their own humanity, destroyed their own humanity by oppressing their neighbors. Before we swing back and reflect on this, let me just give a few comments on verses four to six. Then I saw all the toil and all the skill uh, in work uh, come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hand and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after wind. In many ways, this is simply just uh, pro- uh, meditating on something you find over in the Proverbs. Uh, Proverbs fourteen thirty: A tranquil heart um, gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. Right. There is a dynamic in which the, 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 the teacher is, is meditating on that. Um, it is a seeing how other people are prospering. I want it. I will have it. I will accomplish it. And I will give everything to get it. Right? They are uh, striving to get everything that they can on their own terms. But then on the flip side, right, you have those who are uh, effectively workaholics. <laughs> you know, that's what this is, effect- is meditating on. And then you have those, the full... Um, 
folds his hands and eats his own flesh. People who are so lazy that they will expect everybody to serve them, to help them, to cater to them, to help every living need that they have, never lifting a finger to help anybody, only to receive, and they effectively are consuming their own humanity. Both the workaholic and the the lazy-holic are effectively... uh, denying the humanity of other people that they are created to serve and love other people and demanding that other people work on their own terms. Both of them, um, both are destroying their humanity. Um, Dr. Sio, who's a commentary on Ecclesiastes, uh, has been very helpful to me. He just simply comments, human effort manifested in competition is unreliable, but the lack of effort, folding of hands, brings destruction, Right? This is still the dis- distortion of humanity by the, u- by the oppressing of neighbors, the using of power uh, to distort uh, the value of other people. So how do we meditate on this and then find our rest- restoration, a renewal of these categories in Christ? If you've ever, uh, actually at the very beginning of the church, one of the things that we did is we we preached through the Gospel of Luke, and we looked at the personal encounters between Jesus and people in the Gospel of Luke, and if you were to go through and just kind of, um, maybe this afternoon, read through the Gospel of Luke and just pull out the personal encounters, just, he certainly, there's lots of teaching and miracles and sort of things like that in the Gospel of Luke, but you will find that one of the main focuses of Luke in his account is Jesus's... um, godly, dignity-bestowing interactions with women and the marginalized. You see this certainly through his miracles where he will, uh, lepers were certainly kind of like the dregs and the outer edges of society, and Jesus personally engages with them, um, lays hands on them, talks to them, values their pre- their presence. You see this through people who are um, the tax collectors and uh, the sinners, the prostitutes, all these categories of people that are just basically on the margins of society because they have, how they have so used and abused um, the culture around them uh, or been victimized by it. And then you just have all these interactions between Jesus and women through the Gospel of Luke and the, certainly in other Gospels where Jesus, you almost, I mean, certainly the Bible is not a, uh, a movie, but you see him locking eyes with somebody, another woman, who that was seen as basically, uh, they were below the lowest ring of society acknowledging her value, engaging her in a conversation, and speaking to her as somebody with human dignity, somebody that was not to be oppressed, somebody who had been the object of oppression, somebody whose tears he had almost certainly seen and heard, somebody that he, in his own presence, and hearing them, valuing them, was the comfort that they had been so yearning for and had never experienced. To the oppressed, Jesus' voice was the presence of God to bestow dignity upon them. This is why um, Jesus was was exhibiting what it means to be a humanity that comforts with the presence of love for other people. This is why when we go on uh, trips or we help in the city, we hand out food to the homeless and the needy, when we receive help from other people, but when we go and serve and help others, whether it's a, a camp or we help um, foster care kids or whatever it is, 
uh, we feel better because, in a sense, in giving of ourselves to lift up and bestow dignity on somebody else who has largely been marginalized, overlooked, um, is a way of not only restoring their humanity, but, res- but feeling our own humanity being restored as well. Right? There is this dance of bestowing dignity and having dignity received in how we love and serve and value with the presence of our neighbors, those around us, comforting those who are oppressed. So with that being in mind, I, I do want to turn for a moment and I want to reflect on the, the events from this past week with George Floyd. With the murder of George Floyd, we find ourselves facing yet again the reality of oppression within the black community in our, in our nation. And I want to say this acknowledging that for us um, here in Manchester, New Hampshire, in the Manchester, New Hampshire area, um, uh, Manchester is 92% white, um, 8% um, ethnic diversity, and there has not been, uh, with the U.S. Census, there has not been a, an African slave in our state since 1840. Uh, obviously, New Hampshire fought on the Union side of the Civil War. Um, all those things being said, um, within our own state, uh, many of those who have been a part of the rise of, of white supremacy have come from New Hampshire. So um, some of the individuals who helped organize the Charlottesville Um, Tiki Torch, white supremacist guys, um, those guys are from the New Hampshire, Vermont area. Um, And with that being in mind, I I want to acknowledge and help us to reckon with the dynamics around the murder of George Floyd. The first African slaves were sold on record in the American colonies in 1619. This is not to mention any of the Native Americans that were previously uh, enslaved as well or those who were done off the books. The American Civil War was ended in um, in 1865 with the uh, supposed liberation of uh, black Americans. Brown versus the Board of Education ended segregation um, at the educational and federal level in 1954. The Civil Rights Act of 1964 made it illegal to discriminate based on on race and sexuality, or sex, among other things. That is 1964 from 1619, we have a nearly 400 year uh, time span where a culture is built on the back of those who are marginalized, denied their humanity, oppressed and subjected under the predominant culture. You wanna call that white culture, you wanna call that the majority culture, whatever. I think that it is appropriate for us to recognize that in the remaining 50 years since that time period, there is still a lot of work to be done. God is not deaf to the tears of the oppressed. This is not in any way to condone or specifically uh, press towards one political party or another. This is simply to lay out the cause of justice is at the heart of God and our humanity is restored in fighting for the humanity of those around us that experience oppression. It is to lean in and hear their stories and value their oppression. Value what they have experienced. Not to condone, obviously, it's not what I'm saying, but to value their humanity by listening to who they are, what they've experienced, and wanting to make things different. Does anyone listen to comfort the black community? 
Yes, Jesus does. And certainly the body of Christ must respond with the heart of Jesus to care about how the black community has largely been oppressed. The image, I, I won't show it, but the image of George Floyd's death under the knee of somebody in power embodies the very issue that they are seeking to expose. And we must have an ear for it. We must listen to it. To find our humanity, we must insist on our neighbor's humanity. We must, rest- we, we must be restored together. There is something of our own humanity, if we are in the predominant culture, that is to be restored, enjoyed, and renewed in devaluing and listening to the oppression and the demolition of that oppression for those in the marginalized sections of our economy. I know that as we consider this reality, that there is a sense of being scared, that there is something in me, um, whether it's a racist impulse or an indifference impulse, or it's something that has contributed to the oppression of our neighbors that will be exposed. And this is the call of the gospel. Jesus died in the midst of all of these various dynamics. He died in the midst of a racist, oppressive culture both on both sides. He died as a marginalized man on the edges of a city between two people who were definitely criminals while he was innocent so that the cries of the oppressed would never be unanswered again. We must join the heart of Jesus in leaning into our oppressed neighbors because even the worst things about us were seen and put on display in Jesus' marginalized crucifixion and his victorious resurrection. There may be areas where we need to repent and lean in and hear, but those are the very areas where Jesus is calling us to find our humanity restored and listening with his ear through the tears of the oppressed. And maybe that is you as well. We've been talking about the black community and reflecting on the issues with George Floyd. Maybe you are, regardless of ethnicity, also experiencing your own oppression. One of the things I've valued most deeply about who we are as a church, this has been um, something that the leadership has reflected on the last year, becoming more aware that we are a church that is full of absolutely broken people, largely kind of like a little bit of some singeing on their backs as they're coming out of some uh, incredibly terrible dynamics, becoming a refuge for people here in the city that just need to experience the loving presence and grace of Jesus. Maybe that is also for you as well, whatever your oppression that you've experienced. We want to be a community that cares about your humanity and finding it restored in Jesus. To be in the gospel uh, this is a thought from my, my friend Donnie Cho, who is a pastor down in Philadelphia. To be in the gospel is to care about oppression, even if you can't relate to the context of which it, or whatever's happened, and not simply to acknowledge it as it is. It is to care and lean in, have the heart of Jesus broken for those oppressed, hear their tears, and lean in with the restorative justice of the gospel into their lives. Let me just give a couple of resources, and we're going to move on in this passage. Um, Dr. Eric Mason, he's the pastor of Epiphany Fellowship uh, down in Philadelphia. 
um, actually this morning is posting a video of a conversation um, that is going to be much more um, insightful and helpful um, than anything that I would have to say on the events surrounding George Floyd and the, um, the experience of black Americans in our country. Um, I would very strongly encourage you to look that up. I'll post it as best I can. Dr. Eric Mason, he also wrote a book called Woke Church, and I would again encourage you to consider that book as something that, um, if you need help in reflecting on this. And then um, from King's College in New York, um, Dr. Anthony Bradley um, is a scholar that I highly respect. I follow him on Twitter. He has some abrasive things to say at times, but they are abrasive because they are insightful and they wake you up. I would encourage you to consider his books on uh, on race in America. Um, He has some very helpful work, and so you can find his books on Amazon as well. That being said, we're now going to turn, uh, pick up here in verse 7. I hope that we've pulled out what we can from the beginning of this chapter, and I entrust the reflections that you have uh, on those that build from that and are more insightful to your missional community. We're going to pick up here in verse 7. And another way in which we distort our humanity is we distort our humanity by neglecting our neighbor. Um, First was oppression. Second is neglecting. Again, I saw this vanity under the sun, one person who, who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he, is never, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, and he has yet no other to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but who can keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Okay, here, before we kind of start delving into this, let me just make sure one thing is clear. Uh, This verse is not saying if you are single, um, you are totally neglecting your neighbor, that you are of no value to the kingdom of God, and that humanity is less. Jesus was single. This is not what it's talking about. What this is talking about is that phrase there at the very beginning of verse 8, one person who has literally no other, right? They are a solo person. They exist only and of and for themselves, right? Um, If you want to think of like what's sort of a character to think of with this, um, you can think of Scrooge, right? Or Scrooge McDuck, both of those. Uh, Although Scrooge McDuck actually uh, in the DuckTales storyline, he actually like becomes a pretty decent guy with his nephews, right? (laughs) So not Scrooge McDuck, just the character Scrooge from The Christmas Carol. Scrooge, right? Um, has the three ghosts visit him. He suddenly comes to realize, basically, Scrooge is a parable of what this verse is all about, right? Um, you are living only for yourself, and you're going to die, you penny pincher. Um, or in the biblical storyline, you could think of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was all alone, right? He had his huge house, had totally ripped off all his friends and neighbors for their, for their money, and here he was, um, all alone, and yet, he is allured to Jesus, and once he finds Jesus, all his, his pockets unleashed, giving all his money out. His table's open for everybody. This is somebody who is willfully choosing to have nobody else in their life, and they're dependent on nobody. You actually find this phrase, no one else, right? Uh, no other. Um, in the parable, of, uh, in Jesus' parable in Luke 12, 
where he tells a parable of a guy who lives only for himself and his own gain. And he says, um, in the parable, God addresses this man on the night that he's dying as he's planning to expand his kingdom for himself. God says to him, fool, verse verse 20 of Luke 12, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, right, all this cute, you know, amassing more barns and etc. whose will they be, right? It's almost as though Jesus was reflecting on this very parable here at the end of verse 8, right? For whom am I toiling and depriving myself? To live only for yourself and to value only yourself is to neglect others around you. And that is a distorting of your own humanity and it is a denying of the humanity of your neighbors around you. Right, this is then verses 9 to 12. This is a, uh, you could, this kind of skips through this. Uh, there's a two, 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 three, right? We have uh, two people um, who get more uh, together in their business work um, than they do if they were just working on their own, right? They produce more, right? Or if you're on a camping trip, right, verse uh, 11, right, there's not like a sexual connotation to that. It, if you've ever uh, been camping, you know that sometimes um, it gets super cold at night and it's just, uh, you got to spoon it up or you're going to get super cold, right? If that makes you feel awkward, then you've, you've never done any hardcore uh, camping. Uh, I did a camping trip in college where um, we were hiking a 70-mile track over uh, four or five days, doing about 20 miles a day. Um, on day three, I started to have signs of hypothermia. Thankfully, uh, nobody had to lay in a sleeping bag with me. But what we did do is we had to pour hot boiling water into canteens and put those in a sleeping bag and then put one of those like uh, metal things, like uh, aluminum wraps over me to warm me up. That's what this verse is talking about. I still needed somebody else to keep me from getting hypothermia. After, after all my hiking illustrations, I'm sure nobody's going to want to ever go hiking with me ever again. <laughs> but that's what this verse is about. Right? And then verse, uh, the third kind of two is um, right, somebody breaks in your home or you've got a struggle going on. Uh, two people on one guy, unless, you know, what, they're Thor the mountain or whatever. Um, <laughs> it's going to be better than one. And then it ends with this, a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Uh, just to kind of burst any sort of uh, allegory bubbles, um, this is not a reference to the Trinity, and this is not saying, this is not necessarily a reference to saying, like, if you're, uh, you know, husband and wife, and then you add God, and that's a threefold cord, that's not quickly broken. Uh, the word here for cord is used in um, Judges 16, the, one of the cords that Samson breaks. So it, it's not saying that it's, impenetrable, that it's somehow like perfect. It's just simply amping it up to say, look, more together, more working together, more for each other, more in unity together is better than being on your own, right? That's the, that's the purpose of these illustrations. It is to highlight the fact that under the sun, many deny and distort their humanity by neglecting their neighbors, I feel in this, though I don't feel like this necessarily applies to King's Cross Church, I do feel in this a confrontation of the independent spirit of New Englanders. We often think that we can just do things on our own and that people uh, are only necessary tools to get what I need for my homestead and I do not need other people with me. I do not need to give and take with others around me. I do not need to work with others around me. It is just me. This is a confrontation of the independence that is in our blood as New Englanders. And the restoration will often feel simply like saying, I cannot do this alone. I'm not as strong as I thought I was. 
I need others around me. That is why we are a community of people that, are, that is built around not only loving Jesus together, but it is a bunch of weak, broken people who absolutely depend on Jesus and need each other together, right? In the cross of Christ, here is a, here is a reflection for us in how we see this confronted in Jesus. In John chapter 12, you see the story of Jesus in the midst of a crowd, and Jesus is in the midst of the crowd and says this startling phrase, John 12, 32, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. When Jesus said that in the midst of the crowd, he was saying that he would experience the aloneness the neglect that we all treat the other people with, he would be drawn up and strung between heaven and earth, and he would be absolutely alone before the face of God and all the wrath that we deserve for how we've treated each other and treated God. He would be all alone. He would be strung up between us and God, neglected by all humanity, abused. And yet, at that very moment, he is in the death of Christ, drawing us to himself drawing us by the very act in that moment, drawing us into the presence of God. He draws us into himself. He draws all to himself so that we would experience the opposite of the neglect that this verse is speaking to, right? We neglect our neighbors and God restores his presence among us by bearing the wrath of the neglect that we have for others. All the ways in which we've seen our neighbors and thought, it seems like something's going on, but I got to get my groceries inside. All the ways in which we've seen people struggling and thought, I got to get to work. All the ways in which we neglect the humanity of our spouses or our children so that we can get what we want. Jesus not only bears all of that but then he draws us to himself and so that in him we become a community that is built around a God that loves broken people and draws us to each other. We're going to finish out. I know this is a bit of a sobering sermon or a sobering passage. We're going to finish out in verses 13 to 16. One of the other ways that we need to consider how we distort our humanity um, and to wisely restore our dignity is that we distort the uh, in distorting our humanity by wise. I'm sorry, blah, distorting our humanity by using our neighbors. Again, this is going to feel very familiar given all the ways we kind of saying the same thing from different angles. But let's just end out here, verses thirteen to sixteen, and you'll see this as we work through this. Better was a poor man was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, right? This is a, a rags to riches story, right? He, for he, he went from prison to the throne, um, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, and all of whom he led. Yet those who came later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. 
there's a story here, and in this story, you see three generations in view, right? You have the king who won't listen to advice. You have the youth that is to supplant him, and then you have the third generation that will no longer remember the youth that supplants the original king, right? While there's certainly a value, he says, right, um, in being, a, it's better to be a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king, the story has this feel that basically the youth becomes the king who won't listen to the advice and is, is, him, is himself not supplanted by somebody else who has a similar rags to riches story, right? This is very common in America, right? We, we have the American dream, right, where I, I worked my way up from I was the mail carrier to the CEO, right? All of these stories that we have within our American culture are basically this sort of thing, right? Um, right? Uh, the all of whom he led also has that, excuse me, um, a flair of uh, celebrity culture, right? Like, I am so well known. He's so well known that all people followed him. And yet, just a generation later, nobody, nobody remembered him. Nobody could remember his name, right? Nobody could recall who he is. One of the most fascinating illustrations that I've ever experienced right, of this is I was hanging out with, it was me and Jay and another friend of ours, and we were hanging out downtown, and um, I was relaying to this third friend of ours uh, a, a comment that um, somebody had meant, mentioned on the Gospel Coalition. He just simply said, it's crazy to me to think that the current generation and younger uh, in America have no clue who Billy Graham is. Right, I, I grew up United Methodist. Right, Billy Graham was a Baptist guy. Like we didn't really, you know, care about those Baptists, <laughs> whatever. Right, but I still knew who Billy Graham was, um, and it is incredible to me. So where that I was telling him, like this kind of rings true, but this is kind of an incredible story to me. Right, just remember, Billy Graham has he has provided pastoral counsel to twelve U.S. presidents. Right. Uh, from Harry Truman to Barack Obama, he worked with Martin Luther King Jr. Um, and here we are saying this, and this is a guy who, from everything I can tell, Bill Graham was not out to make his name great, right? He's not entirely the story of somebody who's seeking to make his name great. And here I was telling them, Billy Graham probably isn't known by anybody uh, in the younger generation. And this guy sitting behind us, almost exactly on cue, pulls up his phone, turns around, he's like, who are you guys talking about? Are you talking about this guy? Pulls out his phone, shows a picture of Billy Graham. He's like, who is Billy Graham? I don't know who he is, but I like that guy's mug. Man, that guy's a manly looking guy. He had no idea who Billy Graham was, no clue that he had shaken the hand and provided pastoral counsel to 12 presidents, worked with Martin Luther King Jr. Um, and yet here we are living in a country massively influenced by Billy Graham, and he has no clue who he is. Right, so that's Billy Graham, who, I mean, you still should know who he is, right? Who was not seeking to make his name famous. How many famous people today will be totally forgotten within barely a generation, right? This is why all of us are like, when we mention our favorite musicians, you know, and I go on a rampage in our missional community of doing 90s pop songs and nobody knows who they are, we get aghast. But it's because the striving after power, the striving after status, is striving after wind. 
But what this passage is exposing is that people who make that their goal to be known, to be famous, to be well-loved and liked, even if they get their name on a star on the street, they are using other people to get to where they are. They are using other people. They are amassing a crowd for their own fame, their own glory, and they will be forgotten within a blink of the eye. So how does Jesus enter into this and restore our humanity? We have to remember that this is all said on the back end of Ecclesiastes 3, where God comes in and says, all of these good gifts, even though they're hard, they require a lot of work, they are for your good, and they are given to us in the hand of Christ. They are given to us by him, by the king himself, and Jesus Christ comes in and gives, graciously gives us his specific attention, not to use us, but to die for us. Right? You realize when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we are celebrating the opposite, the polar opposite of this passage. This passage is all about using other people to amass a name so that I can be remembered. Jesus Christ lays down his life, and in the Lord's Supper, he almost literally says, eat me up. Depend on me at the expense of my life so that you can find your life. Jesus lays down his life for those that he values and loves. He does not use them. He denies his life. He restores our humanity by giving us a proper humility and recognizing this Jesus, the one who creates and upholds the universe, he loves me. He values me. He wants he wants me. I wonder, and we'll close with this thought. I wonder if all of this in Ecclesiastes 4 is in the back of the Apostle Paul's mind. In 1 Timothy 4, I'm sorry, 1 Timothy chapter 2, the last seven verses, or the first seven verses of that verse chapter says this. He's after, um, after laying out, here is what the gospel is, the king of ages, immortal invisible, the only true God, to whom be glory forever and ever. What does this gospel mean for us, this restoration of our humanity? What does it look like? Paul says this in 1 Timothy 2. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, and intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that they may lead that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way, this is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is no, for there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying. A teacher to the Gentiles in faith and truth you almost see Paul meditating on each of these three dynamics as we end this, this passage. Right? He, we read this, we tend to read this, for, pray for all who are in high positions, right? Like, we think that, we read that and we think, oh God, like, would you give them wisdom? But I wonder, remember at the time Paul is talking about this, he is talking about people who are oppressing the church. And yet what he says it's almost as though he's praying for the oppressors, those who are tempted to, to abuse their power in the government, that they would find a comforter and be saved from, their, their, from themselves, 
Right? It's not simply God have give them wisdom. But I wonder if Paul is even reflecting on this Ecclesiastes 4 dynamic. God, would you, would you free them from their addiction to power? And then the, the, the corollary to that is that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, right? Those who are oppressed, whose tears are not comforted, simply just want to be and live. And here Paul is reflecting on both of those dynamics. And then, right, what does he say? This is, this is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires for all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth, right? It, almost as though he is saying... Uh, I want you to be so known in your community. I want you to so love those in your community that all people know that they are valued and have dignity, that they are not neglected, that they are known and valued, that the people of the church of God lean into and love literally all people, which is why he then at the end of this emphasizes, look, even you Jews who don't think that the Gentiles have a right place in the church, I'm the apostle to them. They matter. All people would come to know the presence of Christ among them, that their humanity is valued and restored, and that we would live in such a way that we are godly and dignified, that we have a peaceful and quiet life, and that we live for the good of other people to bless our city, not to use our neighbors to get the political power to make people do the things that we want them to do, but to be a faithful presence of the person of Jesus Christ to those around us. I'm not trying to impose that on this, but Ecclesiastes has profoundly helped me see that there is a wisdom thread through the Bible that informs kind of the backdrop of a number of things that I had previously kind of overlooked. And so as we consider, we take this passage in and we consider it, we meditate on it, we process it, consider how we destroy our humanity leads us to see how Jesus Christ restores our dignity in himself. So, would you go with this simple thought from Ecclesiastes 4, consider how we destroy our humanity, but primarily lean into that negative so that you see the color on the other side. How Jesus restores our humanity and his presence among us. How he restores his, our humanity by his valuing of us. How he restores our humanity by listening to our, our tears and our oppression and gives us new life in himself. May you find sober, joyful hope as we look these realities in the face and find Jesus lovingly looking us back. Would you go now in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit? Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.